Hey there, and welcome to Pink Squirrels, brought to you by Sapia AI, your guide to the future of HR, HR tech, and big HR ideas. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pink Squirrels. When it comes to recruitment, and perhaps in general, AI is one of the most misunderstood and unfairly maligned technologies humans have ever created. In fact, going back earlier this year to a LinkedIn poll about AI chatbots, just 30% of nearly 7,000 people said they would trust an AI to hire ethically and fairly. That's alarming, of course, knowing what we know about the ability of our AI smart interviewer to provably disrupt bias and increase hiring fairness in a way that humans just can't. Suffice to say, Sapia takes its approach to ethical AI very seriously. That's why we're talking to Shay Brown today, who's a renowned AI ethicist. Shay is the CEO and founder at Babel AI, that's B-A-B-L, and he has much to say about how he might build and maintain trust in AI systems. He also has a range of practical tips for HR leaders who are starting to examine AI technologies. Let's make it happen. Shay, welcome to the show. By way of beginning, I want to share some highlights from your resume, I hope you don't mind. PhD in astrophysics, master's in physics, and that's just for starters. So you could really be doing anything. My question to you is, what brought you to AI and ethics specifically? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question because at the face of it, it seems like, what am I doing talking about AI and AI and hiring and all of this? So it started out because I, I started getting really interested in AI in an astrophysical context. So um, in fact, I worked at, at CSIRO in Australia for three years and, and Australia is building these massive telescopes out in the um, out in the west, and they're it's going to look at the sky in such detail that there's no way for a human to look at every piece of the sky. It's not for, you can get everybody on Earth pouring over these images um, day and night, and you just can't you simply can't do it. So the question is, how can we leverage these advances in artificial intelligence to do it automatically? And and when I started, it was sort of early days of uh, trying to understand that. And the, the technology was not as good as it is now. Um, so I just started really pouring myself into AI, trying to answer those questions. Because there's, as an astronomer, there's a lot of intuition that you have. When you look at an image, you can say, oh, that's, that's fake. That's an artifact in the data. Um, and it's difficult to teach a machine to do that sort of thing. And so I really started getting into it. And, and I spent five or six years really learning the ins and outs of modern AI. And then I thought of being the, the, you know, the clever guy that I am, why don't I start a business? It would be fun. And my original intention was to sort of build AI for people like NASA or the European Space Agency um, to do the sort of thing that I was already doing in, in academia. And I, the first thing you do, of course, is go talk to other people, uh, industry and as I started doing this sort of this customer discovery process, who would be interested in this? I started realizing that there's a whole slew of problems that have nothing to do uh, with astrophysics, but have something to do with AI and how people rely on AI and trust AI or not trust it. And I noticed that real harm was happening. Uh, and so I pivoted and I said, I know a lot of philosophers. I know a lot of lawyers. Let's get together and really try to tackle this issue of harms that can be propagated by AI, and more importantly, how can we avoid them and mitigate them? Can you talk a bit about the kinds of industries where you see AI being used that you're you're advising on, Shay? Like, you know, where are you seeing great interest and take up? Yeah, so clearly in human resources, that's a that's obviously a big one. Um, 
But in uh, ed tech, that's another place where where people are really trying to automate and personalize education. And AI is a natural fit. Anytime you want to automate and personalize, AI is a natural fit. So, you know, we've worked in the ed tech industry um, uh, quite a bit, really trying to solve some of some of those problems. And autonomous vehicles is another obvious one where it's very heavy uh, AI focus and the stakes are really high. I mean, for all of these, the stakes are quite high. If a, if a mistake is made, um, the stakes on an individual level can be extremely high. But with autonomous vehicles, that that can be taken to the extreme. Um, and then there, of course, financial services are another place where uh, automation and AI have really taken off. And even though they have a really strong model risk management uh, in financial services, it's sort of required by law that they be very careful about their models. The It hasn't quite gotten as broad as what the AI ethics community is thinking about in terms of harm. And so that's, that's, there's been an interesting sort of evolution in that field that we're sort of taking part in. Uh, so, but yeah. it's every industry now. Yeah. I mean, we do talk about AI being the fastest growing tech trend ever. And, you know, I think um, when people get worried about it's going to take my job, what I say is that, you know, managers who use AI will outperform and replace managers who don't use AI. So it's about how do you help people navigate it safely. Um, in the hiring space, obviously, we've come to know of you and we'll be working with you around our own technology in terms of reviewing it from an ethics perspective. But, you know, when you're working in the HR field, who typically contacts you from a company and, and what are they trying to solve for when they retain your services? Yeah, so that's a that's a good question. It, it's the field is so young that it's there's no standard person. I mean, that's part of the problem with a young, you know, there's who is responsible for this issue, and it has ranged anywhere from the CEO uh, to uh, someone who manages a team of machine learning engineers to the legal counsel of the of the company you know, because they're aware of regulations and they're like, oh, we have, you know, we got to do something about these upcoming regulations. And, and so it's been all over, all over the place. And it just depends on each individual organization, what, who has that, who wears the hat of, I'm going to be the one that worries about the risk associated with AI. And what are they doing? What do they want you to solve by bringing you into the business? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So what, people want and what they should get are sometimes two different things. I, I think mostly it's around bias. So there were a lot of the work that we've done in the past, um, it, not just in the, in the hiring space, uh, people come to us for bias because bias is the buzzword for AI. AI is, I think some people believe is inherently biased, which I don't think is true, but it's, that's what, that's where the fear is because that's where the reputational risk, if you have an algorithm that's biased, that's, that's very damaging for your reputation. And most people come to us because they want some clarity around what do we do about bias? And, and we've done that and we've tested algorithms very directly for bias before. But what we always encourage is to think a lot more broadly than that. Um, and in the end, it's really the ethical analysis and the sort of the governance around AI that I think is more of more value that in, in, in the sense that they feel like it's more of more value. They realize, oh, wait a second, there's 
There's more to this than bias. We should have been thinking about this all along. And now there's a sort of roadmap that you've laid out of where could harm happen, where can risk lie. And there's a path forward for something to do about it. Whereas if it's biased, it's like either it's biased or not and go fix it. That's a very sort of narrow problem, which doesn't have a lot of context often. And putting that sort of that context around it is really the important part. So long story short, they come to us for bias and what they get is something a little more holistic, which which I think has a lot more value. So in the context of hiring tools, because um, I think that's where we're seeing a lot of AI being leveraged, like without giving away your IP, if you were sitting across from a team, which may include the CHRO, the head of talent, and you wanted to give them some framework or roadmap for how to navigate you know, the use of AI in hiring, could you share what you would say? Yeah, no. Yeah, I well, I don't mind giving away my IP because it's you know it's fairly it's fairly straightforward. I think <clears throat> the first thing I would say is that that you have to be aware of the socio technical system. So if I had to narrow it down to kind of one thing, like what's the most important thing that might be missed, is is to really focus on where does your tool sit, or where does the tool you're thinking of using sit in the entire sort of candidate journey and to think less about what's the risk of, you know, I'm going to talk to this vendor and I'm going to take this vendor's tool and put it in my sort of candidate pipeline in some way. Instead of focusing on what is the risk of this vendor's particular tool, start thinking more about how does it connect up with the rest of my pipeline. And it's that sort of interstitial like that, the places where it connects with humans and it connects with the candidate, in, you know, in, in particular, but also hiring managers and, and, and anybody who has to make some use of that, the output of that tool, that's where a lot of the risk happens. And a lot of times the, the risk can be mitigated through understanding that connection, understanding where that fails and what a failure might look like, and then approaching uh, the problem with the mind of I'm going to try to govern or support those places where there's a weakness and, and failure could be bad. Um, that's the approach. And I, and, and I, I think thinking about the big picture holistically is, is the way to mitigate risk in a really robust way, as opposed to a very narrow kind of what I'd call brittle way, where I just think about one tool or one, you know, bias or one sort of concept like transparency and focus on that if you pull back a little bit and think a lot more holistically that is going to be the the way where you actually really mitigate risk can, can we just talk really practically here because um you know i think that's that's really interesting we we often talk about inclusion starts with your choice of technology and and i'm also a believer coming from an hr background that the technology choices you make can either enhance trust with your people or or kill it um, so when you talk about how it intersects with the individuals, you know, who are going to touch it, like, what does that mean practically? Like, when you think about candidates, what are you trying to examine around AI and, you know, to, to, to assess it for, I guess you're talking about ethical fairness. Is that is that the benchmark that you're using? What's the benchmark yeah. that you're meeting here, given we live in a world with some laws, um, but also yeah. a lot of ambiguity about you know, what laws might be coming. 
Yeah. So, I mean, the benchmark, we definitely don't use, we pay attention to the laws, but we don't use that as the, the common denominator. And in fact, we do have a, a methodology where what we focus on, on one hand, are the, there's two possibilities, the rights and interests of the stakeholders. And those stakeholders could include um, the vendor, it can include the candidate, it can include uh, the employer that's utilizing the tool. Um, or harm, you know, and there's different ways of doing it. And it depends on the system, what we focus on rights and interests, some of which of course are protected by law or, or some are even human rights there, you know, they get their, the duties that, that are, that other people have to, to protect those uh, are really important, or we can focus on harm. And, and once you focus on one of those two, then we, we, we essentially do a deep dive and say, what are the potential, let's call them, let's say harms for now. What are the potential harms that could happen separate from the law? We're not worried about what law requires at this moment, because normally a lot of these harms are things that are not protected by law. It's sort of supererogatory uh, to think about those, but I think that's where a lot of the risk lies because someone can feel harmed and that, you know, they get on Twitter and start talking about it, that's real damage to your your brand or your company, and you have to worry about that. So um, that's where we focus is something that's that's more fundamental than law. Uh, and then, of course, you got to check your homework afterwards and make sure you haven't missed anything that might be legally, uh, you know, that might be obligated. But uh, I think starting from that lower level is 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 more important. There was a second part to your question, which I think I missed. Oh, just, you know, I guess the, um, you know, it's really interesting to think about the different layers of compliance, if you like, um, or risk. So there's legal risk, which, you know, people seem to think that AI somehow is not subject to legal requirements, which obviously it is. There are many in every country around not being discriminatory in use, etc. the EOC, four-fifths. But then you're talking about a completely different threshold. And Part of what makes it so ambiguous is, you know, the unknown of what that threshold is. Um, and, you know, you've got this really interesting background. You seem like a really smart guy, but do we have to follow your guidance on this or, you know, or, 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 or not? Um, you know, I'm just, I'm just sort of curious about how organisations are responding to your advice around what's ethical versus what isn't. You know, ethics always just struck me as... So one of those courses you do at uni, but I didn't quite know what job you were going to get. But now suddenly there are all these jobs for people who are steeped in ethics. Like, how do you manage some of those tensions? And um, yeah, it's, yeah, there are tensions. I mean, we do. So, I mean, the first thing I'll say is that there's no, we don't impose our ethics, let's say, on any particular problem or scenario. We, we, and that's why it's important to go to something that's really fundamental, like, you know, human interest, like I have an interest in, in an education, or I have an interest in getting, being gainfully employed, or I have an interest in, in my privacy and those sorts of things. And, and those are, you know, there are cultural differences between like the concept of privacy, for instance, is one which varies, especially East, East to West. There's a, there's a big difference in what sort of appropriate levels of privacy. Um, but in general, you can get down to fairly fundamental things. And so, once, once you do that, and we do an analysis, right, we, we really look and we see, okay, here are places where uh, your tool could potentially infringe on someone's interest. And sometimes that happens because there's a, there's maybe there could be a problem with your tool. And, and oftentimes this can happen without us even having tested the tool to, in the, it, 
you know, this is just a risk. There's a risk that if your tool fails, this person could, their interests could be infringed upon in some way. And once you do that, then we can come up with recommendations for mitigating that. And oftentimes there's very little con conflict. You know, it's, it's, you know, you need to make sure that the person who is using your tool is trained and aware of this potential limitation that when this red light turns on or something that it mean they need to know what that means, not just superficially, but in detail. Uh, and, and here are the details that they should know in order for them to make an informed decision to mitigate that potential risk. There are times of course, where our recommendations do sort of conflict with what the legal team might worry about. So in particular, transparency is a really big one because there are, you know, the example I just gave was for someone who's using the tool uh, to make, to help make decisions or to somehow move a candidate through uh, a pipeline. But on the candidate side, there are harms that can be mitigated sometimes with more transparency to the candidate or the, or the end user, if it's in a different field. And we often will come up with recommendations for, you know, is there a way for you to put that person at ease or to give them information, which is going to allow them to make a more informed, you know, if we're, if we're thinking about uh, agency as an interest that someone, you know, I make my own decisions because I, I have, I have inf an informed the ability to uh, have agency in this process. And that's where we oftentimes will come into conflict with the legal team because, you know, not all transparency is created equal and some are more risky than others. You let a candidate know that AI is being used, there's potential anxiety even associated with that, given the environment of distrust. Uh, or if you say the wrong thing, that might make people believe something that your tool is using a type of AI, which it's not. And so that's where the legal team might be like, oh, slow down. Let's think through this a lot more carefully. Even though we've thought through it very, very carefully, they're going to have to think through the liability side of things to make sure that they're not unnecessarily exposing their clients to risk. And that's where the conflict comes in. It's not, it's not often, but it, it does uh, show up. Um, it has shown up before. So, uh, Shay, you talked about it, the importance of not imposing your personal ethics or that of, you know, the group of people that you're working with when, when you're coming in and advising. Um, you also mentioned that you worked with philosophers or that was part of the, the, the sort of, you know, the, what got you into this? So, I mean, what is the role of a philosopher in this? Is it really going down to that fundamental right versus wrong thing? Like, where does that come into the process? And, or even how does that help you um, form or break down your, your presuppositions about ethics in general? Yeah, so that's really interesting. So philosophers are, so, I mean, we have philosophers on our team who helped build our framework. So that what I was describing in terms of, you know, even the fact of like, why would you start with interests or rights or harms to begin with, right? That's a, a choice that we've made based on the analysis that we've done. Uh, and that's philosophical analysis in the, in the beginning to really figure out what are we trying to get at with these assessments? What are we trying to do? When we were invited into a company to assess a tool uh, or, an, or a piece of software or a socio-technical system, what is it we're trying to get at? And, and, philosophers are very good at that sort of um, thinking from first principles and sorting through what is important and what is just sort of superfluous. 
And it's important to have that kind of thinking when you're talking about such a complicated either system or a complicated uh, a technical system. I mean, they have to have some technical expertise and that's part of, that's part of the training and why not everybody can do this. But philosophers have the ability to sort of parse out what is important in this particular scenario. And each, each tool is different. Each use case is different. And you need someone who has the ability to sort of separate all of the useless things from what's really, really germane in this, in this case. Um, and so philosophers are great at that. And then in terms of the ethics part, uh, you know, that's something that ethics is really just hard thinking about how you would, you know, what's, what's the right action to do in this moment, given some principles and principles are, that's where people, most people think ethics is subjective. Like I have a principle, I don't want to hurt someone. Maybe somebody else thinks it's okay to hurt someone, right? There's, I think people think that ethics is really subjective, but really the, the process of ethics is if you have principles, I mean, there are people argue, argue with me here, but you have principles, which are, let's say, generally agreed upon uh, in, in, let's say in this society or in this, this particular domain, uh, how do we put those into practice in terms of what are the obligations that I have as a, let's say vendor who's creating these tools, what are my obligations given those principles and ethics is just the logic of going through that process of what is actually required of me in this situation, given those principles. And so it's a, it's a very straightforward uh, you can't get a, get away without it, but it, a lot of people can do it who are not ethicists. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, I, it's, I suppose it's that without making this too paradoxical, a sort of argument because it can quickly spiral into that. I guess the one of the things that we have to do frequently and necessarily is prove um, that our AI is trustworthy, that it's based on trustworthy frameworks, that the machine learning is you know everything is above board, right? And we have to constantly prove that, and, and have we have data and um, other bits of information that prove that out. Um, I guess my question is, you know, how can, from a layman's perspective, or perhaps from a business's perspective, um, we have to trust that your first principles are sound, right? That That's just part and parcel of it. And I guess the question is, what makes um, a trustworthy sort of AI ethicist yeah, at, at that fundamental level? Like, what, how do they know? How do they know that you're the person instead of, you know, one of your competitors, perhaps, who has a different sort of um, set of first principles? Yeah, well, that I mean, that's a good question. Uh, in general, you don't know, right? You can look at someone's CV and you can look at what they've done and say, oh, this is a really smart person. And it's not the principles that are going to make the difference mm. because there have been, I mean, the, the, field, the field of AI ethics, let's say, is fairly young, but there are sort of agreed upon um, high level principles that almost everybody talks about things like fairness, transparency, what that actually means in practice, we are still struggling with, but that's not what's going to make the difference between me or another company that you might want to work with. So if you're a vendor and you're struggling to figure out who, who do I work with? Who do I trust here? You, you have to, uh, you have to rely on basically the comp, you know, having deep conversation like you can't get away with just sort of like okay looking at a piece of paper and saying this this team is going to be great you actually have to talk to the person and it which is why i mean it's it's not something that everybody does 
it takes some effort. You have to talk to that that person or that uh, that company, and and make sure that they understand what your problem is. Now, part of the difficulty in this is that a lot of companies and a lot of people listening to this may not know what their problem is. They know that everybody is saying you got to be aware of this. AI ethics is a thing. You're using AI. I have to worry about this in some way, but it's probably unclear to a lot of people. What am I supposed to be worried about? Like I, mm. you know, you tell me fairness is important. I thought that I w- that's what my whole company is based on, right? A lot, especially in the hiring space, people have this belief, and rightly so, that you know what they're trying to do is to make these decisions in a more fair way, in a more egalitarian way, a way that's going to be better than the, what they've done before. And so you have to have conversations with that person. That person has to convince you that there are issues that you need to think about that are important and that you have to be sufficiently convinced that they have the ability to break those issues down in a way that you're going to take, be able to take action on it and actually solve a problem. And that's yeah. hard. That's hard to do. Can we talk a bit about transparency a bit more? Because I think that, um, uh, I think transparency again with my HR hat on is incredibly powerful for culture when you can turn up in front of your people and say, here's why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and the really interesting almost sort of dichotomy about bringing AI in is that it's intended to create more transparency around decisions being made and it is ultimately data um, in a world where a lot of these decisions that have been made around people have been without data unless you count a CV or an opinion as data. But yet there's this immediate assumption that AI equals bias rather than AI actually interrupts bias. And even Commissioner Sonderling has talked about the potential of AI tools to interrupt bias and create more equity. You know, how do we move the conversation where people lean in and are curious about AI equals fairness rather than AI is the opposite of fairness, where I still think a lot of the, the, you know, the mindset is amongst HR folks? Yeah, well... In my opinion, and of course this is all my opinion, you have to break it down to sort of the fundamental difference between what AI is being used for and what a traditional hiring process might have looked like. So and transparency is really key to this because I think people often will talk about the black box of AI. And it's absolutely true that there are there's artificial intelligence. There's a lot of aspects to it that is a black box. However... One thing that I think people often miss is that that's a black box that, for the most part, will make consistent decisions based on inputs every single time. And, you know, we when we break down a problem, we have something we call a CIDA narrative, C-I-D-A, which is context, input, decision, action. And this is just the way we, we break down the problem. But the context is, what's the context of, of this tool's use? Input is what are the inputs? What's the actual data that gets fed into this? The decision is the AI. It's the decision procedure. Some, based on those inputs, something happens and there's an output. And then there's an action taken based on that output. And the important thing, I think, for people to understand is that I cannot write a a seed of narrative for what Barb is going to do in this situation when I'm having an interview with her, right? It's humans are in a lot of ways, the ultimate black box. And importantly, 
I don't know, or I can't parse out what are the inputs to that human decision. Whereas in the AI, you can, and that's a, that's a significant difference. I know what data is going in and I can explore sort of offline, let's say how variations in that data change the variations in the output. It's, it's understandable in that way. And that's where bias sits. Whereas if I'm, if for a human, it could be very subtle things like I, I dyed my hair this morning and this person doesn't like that, or there's something in the background, like some image, which, which is just off-putting to a person, or my jacket is a little wrinkly or something like that. And so if you think about it in terms of what's the fundamental difference, one of those fundamental differences, we can, we know what the input is. We know what, how the decision procedure works roughly, right? And we can explore what I call the parameter space of outputs based on the parameter space of inputs. And understanding that is understanding bias. And you don't have that available for, because if you might have many, many you know, hiring managers, many, many talent acquisition people, they're all going to behave differently. And uh, understanding that bias is much, much more difficult. And so in my mind, the tra- there's a lot of transparency that can be had uh, in using, through using AI if you do it right and if you really test it in the right ways that you can't possibly get in other processes. So that's so my short what you're answer. Saying, though, is, is obviously very rational, and I, and I understand that and relate to it because I'm a rational person. But from what I see in market, that is a long way from where the market is. So there's something about making people decisions that people feel that needs to be done by people. And, you know, even when you ask questions like, do you think that most biases are unconscious, people will say yes. And then if you say, do you think that AI can remove that bias or, you know, AI can be better than humans, people will default to the humans. So there's this real attachment to, you know, I need to see you, to hire you. I need to look at your body language, which is really a hubristic that we somehow interpret into meaning about quality and how you're going to perform in the role. You know, there's a very strong bias about humans being best fit to make that assessment. And, you know, I think about the comparison to the financial sector where you are making a decision about risk like you are when you're hiring. Um, And if financial services organisations were still making decisions about lending in the way that most organisations make decisions about hiring, they would all be out of business. You know, you'd have to come in for an interview with the bank manager who would ask you questions like, you know, did you pay back the last loan and ask everyone in the bank to interview you to see whether you're a good bet. I mean, it's really archaic, Shay, the way recruitment works and that it takes three weeks, four weeks, maybe you hear nothing. Um, And it is a buyer's market. Right? It is now a market where everyone is fighting for the same scarce talent and it still hasn't changed. You know, do you think that humans will really ever embrace AI in the people space? Like why are we so resistant to, is it the media who keeps rep- repeating the same Amazon experiment, you know, five years later? Like what is it that holds people back from recognising that it can be the way you've described, it can be wayfarer and obviously brings all those other benefits like efficiency and experience and transparency. I, yeah, I think media is a big, a big part of it. Um, but media feeding into sort of fun, very fundamental fears about, you know, um, 
you know, being and very real fears in some sense about being left out of the process because there are, yeah, there are filter effects that happen when you automate any process. You know, if if I take a process that was once done by a human and I automate it, by definition, you're compressing a lot of information, and there is a real fear. and And some people don't conform to the way you've compressed it, right? There are people who just are different uh, in many different beautiful ways that may not conform with that process. And so it's all about a little bit of time and education and getting people to understand that absolutely there are risks. I mean, the whole reason that I founded Babel was because I was worried about these risks. And, you know, our mission is to promote human flourishing in the age of AI. That That's full stop. That's what we want to do. Make sure that humans have this sort of this pr primacy, this position. But that doesn't mean that humans need to be making every decision. That just can't, that's not necessarily the way to go. It's making sure that humans make decisions in the right places. And so it's, it's an educate, it's going to be an education process. It's going to be more nuance on the part of the media where it's like, okay, now we've scared you. This is a scary headline. You're sufficiently scared now. Let's now start talking about the nuance of this situation and how do we get around it? It's not always just ban the use of AI in a particular scenario. That's not a nuanced way of approaching it. The nuanced way of approaching it is the way, you know, we're trying to approach it, which is let's look in detail at where the risks are and then let's put governance around those risky areas and make sure that you are promoting human flourishing in, in a real way. I'm just going to challenge you on the compressing bit because to me what I see is on recruitment, you know, 95% of people are just ignored because humans don't have the capacity to scale. And so if you've got a 1,000 applicants for a role, you're not interviewing all 1,000. You might just pick the top 10 based on some superficial two-second read of a CV. You know, I think to me that's where AI actually creates the opportunity for inclusivity and fairness. And so I think that's a key area for us to tackle through research to show that through the application of AI, you probably will see a certain type of the community, a certain part of the community actually continue along the journey who may not have in a world where I'm forced to interview to you face-to-face. -face. We had a, a study done with Professor Andreas Liebrand from Monash University. He's a member of SODI, and he tested our experience for a web des um, developer role, and he found that more women stayed the course when they knew it was AI, when it was transparent, and more men dropped out. So you can extrapolate there why you think that is. But, you know, I think we, we make the assumption as recruiters and HR people that candidates don't want AI. Actually, we see the opposite. Um, they don't think about how it, you, you're going to deliver the benefit. What they want is the benefit of speed, efficiency, and, you know, and a dignifying process. Um, and, and sometimes I think if organisations paid more attention to what the candidate is looking for and started with that, um, you know, they may be more, more open-minded to AI. Um, yeah, absolutely. There, I mean, the, the filter effects are oftentimes very, they could be really subtle or they could be in your face. Something like I'm collecting data from uh, only from people who use iPhones to make some map of the city or to, to decide on what direction, how to drive from one place to the other. That's by default filtering out people who can't afford an iPhone. It's a very specific subset of the population. So you're absolutely right. In the, like in the hiring space and a lot of other spaces, the use of AI can broaden 
the the amount of information and the types of people who have access to various kinds of services or opportunities for jobs. Um, it's just, you know, you have to also be aware of who's getting excluded. And that's, that's just part of the, um, you know, that's part of my job as a person who focuses on the risk as opposed to the opportunity. There are many people who are focusing on, on the opportunity. My job is to look really closely at that, where that, where's that piece of the parameter space that's getting left out and what are the risks associated with them? But that's all part of, that's a part of the ecosystem, right? There's a whole ecosystem of people, of champions for AI, and there are people who are, you know, literal activists against it. And then there are people like myself who are just focused on let's, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's really try to make sure that we've got all of our bases covered so that those opportunities don't uh, disappear for some people and, and appear for a different group. Shay, once you go down the road of AI ethics from a company's perspective, you know, so they, they say, you know, we're looking at this, implementing this AI system either for recruitment or for any other purpose. They bring you in. How often do they need to go back to you? What does the relationship look like over multiple years working with a company such as Babel or, or an AI ethicist such as you? Is it something that as a technologist, they're going to have to continue to work with you? Or, um, you know, how, what does that relationship look like going over many years as the technology changes? Yeah, that's, uh, I, I mean, that's a really important question and it depends uh, a little bit on, so our primary function is to come in as, as to do things like bias assessments and risk assessments. It's less advisory and it's more, um, let's give you a snapshot of where you need to be looking. We also have other services, uh, and in, importantly, we have AI governance, what we call a gap analysis, which is. Let's look at how you're governing your AI currently, things like documentation, uh, assignment of responsibility, how you do assessments and, and uh, checks and things like this. And that, and then we give recommendations like, oh, here's the, here are the gaps. This is where your peers might be. This is, this is where you're not, this is where you're doing really well and you should double down on that. And this is where you might have gaps. Um, that's, that's where we prefer to work, although we do have older clients that, you know, we, we still have an advisory role because, um, in general, there's a huge capacity building problem for AI ethics. AI ethics is a kind of a weird field where the combination of skills is difficult to come by. And, and a lot of it, it has to do with just con constantly being up on what's happening. And so for some companies, it's just not possible to have that capacity. Uh, internally. And so there we have, we play an advisory role where they might call us up and say, listen, we have these stakeholders who are worried about this. We don't, not quite sure how to respond. What, you know, is this something that we need to worry about? Or is it something that we've already got covered? What are your thoughts on this? And, and so we definitely have to play that advisory role because there's just not enough people who, who do this in a really dedicated way, who understand the landscape in such a way that you can respond. And that's the biggest part is responding to stakeholders because you're going to get a reporter calling or you're going to get uh, a you know, some sort of uh, rulemaker or regulator or a client who has worries about what are you doing about this because I just saw it in the paper. And having intelligent responses about that ahead of time, ideally, is what we want to get most of our clients to the pl that place, but in some cases we have to. They do come back to us and, and ask for advice. Yeah, okay. Shay, I mean, I, I 
like just in terms of um, what those, you know, what those engagement looks like, looks like what those engagements look like. So I guess going back to what you were saying before around the power of AI, I'm a huge believer in AI can be for good and it can give people their agency, particularly in the way that we've, you know, we've, we've designed our product and experience. But, you know, coming from recruitment and HR, you know, often they put in place a process or a system without really thinking about the human dimension of that. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been guilty of that too as an HR leader, bringing in technology that sounds really whiz-bang, but sort of ignoring what is this actually going to be like and feel like for the human? Are they really going to want to spend time in this? Do you feel that the introduction of AI, you're almost forced to embrace thinking as a muscle in the team, that it's kind of cultivating a much deeper thought process around why we do what we do? You know, that in consulting I learned the art of what problem are we trying to solve here? You know, and what do we need need to believe for this to hold true? But I don't find that that's a muscle that gets used, you know, as much as it ought to or could in in the sort of people space. So do you feel like in a way that you're sort of teaching the whole muscle of thinking and asking and being curious and, you know, why are we doing this? Um, because then you, you know, you really start to look at it from the other parties perspective, whereas often I think a lot of HR tools are introduced for the organisation. They're top-down, so they get something that they need out of it, but they don't often enough think about, well, how is this going to feel to the other person um, or to the people that will be touching this? Do you, do you feel like it sort of unleashes this whole, you know, kind of capability that, that is being built now around thinking deeply um, around technology choices, process, policy yeah. even. Yeah, no, it, it does. I mean, I think this is probably true of any disruptive technology or disruptive process, right? If you introduce a, a whole new, you know, like think GDPR, what GDPR did for organizations that, I mean, there had to be a whole mindset shift of how data gets used and, and that sort of thing. So it's not necessarily unique to AI, but it does, it's disruptive. And it's disruptive and also risky. And so, you, yeah, you do have to have a different mindset. You have to pull back and start thinking from first principles and start thinking about why is this important to us and, and how does it fit into our process? And do is our process the process we want? You know, it just re, it, it's an opportunity to re-reflect or to reflect maybe for the first time on is this the kind of process it doesn't fit with our uh, our organization's sort of fundamental principles and, and what they stand for. And yeah, it's absolutely sort of an education process. And we do encounter this a lot where we, it has to come from the top. Like it's really important that the C-suite is involved in these discussions because they have typically the big picture. And if you're talking, if you're trying to solve it by saying uh, this sort of middle management person go off and figure out how we're going to use AI in our hiring. Oftentimes they don't have, you know, they're in the weeds of what's happening every day. They don't have that big picture. doesn't mean they can't, but they don't necessarily have that big picture that somebody who's in the C-suite has. Mm -hmm. And that's what you need. You need to either educate those, those people who are in the middle of the organization who, who need to, who don't have that big picture. You need to either pull them out and say, okay, let's, let's start reflecting on this or, there needs to be direct involvement from someone who does have that big picture and can make really important decisions about 
let's redo or rethink the way we do things. Are you getting asked by CHROs to actually help them define an AI strategy? Like, are they thinking about, you know, for our people team or for the business, I need an AI strategy? Or is it more coming at it from the perspective of we have to solve for hiring or we have to solve for this piece of HR? Like, where are you finding the entry point is at that strategy level or at the at the kind of, you know, process level? It's It's at the process level and it's, and it's at the putting out fires level. It's it's not um, so typically. It's now in response to laws. You know that that there 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 are a number of laws that are that either are in place or are going to be in place or are coming on the horizon, like in the EU, that people are realizing that okay, this is going to be something that has, people are going to look at, and we need to figure out what to do. But it's not at the strategy level. It's just like let's do what we need to do and then let's move on. And the strategy is not around how they best use AI uh, in their hiring process. It's, it's more like, how do we avoid trouble? Yeah. A bit of a missed opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Think. It's un, yeah. it's unfortunate. And, but that we also run into the cases where we talk to organizations that have very high level principles on, let's say AI ethics. And they might think that they have it all covered and 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 it hasn't quite trickled down into into the the HR space, and I, I don't know. There's there's a bit of a disconnect there where the, the people who have the high level principles and that and they're also trying to put out fires. And it's not so much that they've had a strategy of like every time we use AI in our organization, whether it be for HR or some other in our products, um, we're going to systematically follow these principles and have these checks and balances and, and tests. It's, it's more like we've got the principles and now we're still putting out fires, the regular business fires that we have and HR and potential regulation is one of them. And so, you know, it's a rare organization that has figured that out. Um, and most of the time it's at the process level. It's just like, I got to fix this one thing. And can you help me with this one problem? Mm. There's a fair amount happening on the regulatory front in the US at the moment. You've got New York City law coming into play from Jan, the draft California legislation, Washington State. Like, What's your advice to American organisations about how to manage that? Like, If there were three things that they should do, aside from high babble, um, you know, what, what, what are the three questions they should ask or the investments they should make? You know, how, how would you advise them? Realizing that this is not legal advice, but just uh, advice with given your expertise. Yeah, so that's a really good question. So I'll do. I'll have like a zero. This one won't count for my three. But uh, having an inventory of what you're using for AI is oftentimes, uh, especially for large organizations, that's um, sometimes they may not even know exactly what they're using. Or some teams might have a. Uh, be using a vendor that they have no idea it's not there's no centralized list and that can be a problem um, because you need that list to figure to mitigate risk in this landscape you just got to know and um, separate from that I think it's it's important to uh, immediately go to your development team uh, the people who are building it let's say if it's in in in-house building or go back to your vendors and ask a few tough questions right because um, bias is clearly an issue for all of these 
laws, you know, disparate impact is, is it's already the law of the land everywhere, pretty much. And uh, the sort of the carry the corollary to that is bias, right? So you, sometimes you can test for disparate impact if you have demographic information, sometimes you can't. And when you can't, you have to test for bias, which is sort of like I, I, what I call expected disparate impact. Like what's the what's the bias we can expect where this tool to be used? You have to make sure that your data science teams have that information. Ask a few questions. Have you tested for bias? Okay, what protected categories have you tested for? Where did you get that data? Do you still have the data? Do you have any information about this? Is it, are you monitoring it? You have to make sure the data science team has those inf- that kind of information available. Um, that's sort of number one. That's number one thing because it's going to be required, right? Somebody's going to ask and it's going to be required by law. And then uh, start thinking about uh, document, like a uh, risk. Risk is the other thing. Like th- there are some, well, let me take that actually. For the HR space, risk is less important. It's going to be uh, validity. So validity is a, you know, you've got to understand that you're measuring what you think you're measuring, right? And so uh, if you haven't done any sort of validation, uh, then that's a really big worry. I think most people have, but just checking in on, let's make sure that, that, that we have validated all of our tools in ways that are sort of accepted by industry. Do you have an IO psychologist that you're working with or some, some contractor that, you, that, you, that has done that? especially for the California law, that's where that's, that's really focused on validity. Whereas New York city is mostly on bias or 100% on bias. And, and just asking those few questions, just making sure that there isn't, because frankly, there are a lot of vendors and employers who just haven't thought through those issues. So on a part of an employer, you use a tool. So let's say they use Sapia in their, in their system, they have it in a particular part of their, their pipeline for, for candidates. And do they, have they reached out to Sapien and said, you know, we're worried about this. Uh, what kind of testing have you done? That sort of thing. Or have they thought through, you know, most employers have demographic information, at least some fraction of the candidates coming through have given their demographic information. Have they recorded that in such a way that if somebody asked them, what is, what's the disparate impact through that little piece in the funnel, right? Most of the time, employers are thinking about that entire end-to-end process, which is what things like the EEOC are going to worry about. But some of these laws are focused on that little piece, just that little piece of the funnel. Who's getting through that? That's now become relevant. And are you tracking the data through that? And so it's just a matter of like waking up a little bit and realizing that you have to start thinking about some of these, these issues proactively because very soon it's going to be something that's required. Yeah, I actually think the regulation is really necessary and we welcome it because um, I think, you know, it's one way of companies being able to discriminate between those who are compliant and are taking those steps to document order trails, to do the testing really broadly, to use tools like model cards versus those that don't. Um, so I think I think it's going to de-risk the whole the whole country um, yeah. by bringing in those regulations. I think the big challenge is just having lots of different states with different different um, rules versus, you know, one at the federal level. But I guess we'll have to wait and see on that. Um, yeah. 
yeah you know, pro procurement is a really important thing like you have to the people who are procuring your ai tools for hiring or anything else they have to have some understanding that there are certain minimal things that the vendor needs to be able to answer uh and like what what kind of training data are you using uh things that are just and we have a whole list at Babel that we that we will share with clients that you know it doesn't have to be a huge list but ask a few questions just to let so you are comforted in, in that, that they have thought about it because there are vendors who just haven't thought about it and so procurement is going to be really important is to make sure that you're asking a few critical questions that are differentiating between those you know the snake oil and and those who are really care about it ask the known unknowns and the and the known knowns in the Donald Rumsfeld way. Um, yep. Just one other thing I was interested in your views on. So candidate privacy obviously has really changed post-GDPR. You know, where do you see candidate rights in the context of what we've been talking about um, and, you know, how important it is for tech companies and, you know, the buyers to consider um, whether or not this technology is using their data in the right way, whether it's using first-party or third-party data. You know, there's been a bit of discussion on LinkedIn of late around tools that scrape your social media um, to assess your risk as a hire in the context of, you know, are you a, a kind of a brand risk? Do you, are you likely to present certain views that might call the company into disrepute? Um, and I, personally, as a former HR person, I'm sort of always horrified about any data that's used about me or about a person that's sort of out there rather than gathered consensually. But do you see a link between candidate privacy and candidate rights to the conversation we've been having? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's, uh, it's one of those fundamental interests that people have that we consider when we do our analysis is that people... People in general have an interest in privacy, and for the most part, they do have, to some extent, a right to privacy, which they can waive when they interact, let's say, with a, a piece of software. But understanding, yeah, I think it's it's something that does need to be considered. And, and you know, one nice way of thinking about this, and I, I, I borrowed this from a conversation that I had recently with an IO psychologist, but the idea that... Um, you use only that information that you believe the candidate is consciously giving to you, right? That's uh, that's one way of approaching it that that would rule out a whole lot of things, right? If and including you know calls into question some forms of let's say video analysis where there are some unconscious things that the candidate doesn't mean to give to you, but you're you're taking that and you're making inferences based on that. It doesn't mean that you can't do video now. In my opinion, I mean some people think you can't my opinion, that doesn't mean necessarily that you don't. It's just you have to think about those sorts of issues. Does a candidate want to give me this information? Am, are we giving them sufficient agency to uh, make decisions about how they want to present themselves to you? And AI gives, it, it can give people those choices where if you're uncomfortable and sitting in an interview, uh, you don't, sometimes people can't have that kind of control either through because of their nerves or, um, it could be even certain types of disability that just make it very difficult for them to make conscious decisions about how they want to present themselves. And AI does give the opportunity. So absolutely, I think it is it is something that not only is important for the conversation, I find it one of the one of the sort of prime 
things that people should be thinking about. Thanks for listening. Think Squirrels is brought to you by Sapia AI, creator of the world's first AI smart interviewer. 